You are listening to Fantasy Film Ball with Matt and Dylan, and on this show, we turn movies into sports and look at all the Oscar prospects and their fantasy value. I believe that this is going to win Best Picture, and here's why. I mean, Denis Villeneuve got all the nominations he needed for Dune and still missed out on the Best Director slot. Don't let me get my hopes up. The Academy has disappointed me too many times. Thank you to the Academy. Thank you to all of you in this room. I can't remember the last time I walked out of the movie theater on such a high. No matter how certain it seems, anything can happen on nominations morning. Never count the Golden Globes for just doing something off the walls and bonkers. It's the kind of movie that reminds me of why I fell in love with movies. And the Oscar goes to... Welcome into episode 24 of Fantasy Football. My name is Dill. And my name is Matt, and this is a show where we turn movies into sports and sports into something that we don't talk about. And this week is a big one. We are completely reinventing the show. We're bringing you something new, something fresh. Uh, so if you're listening here on Spotify, which uh, or Apple Music, or whatever podcast platform you prefer, you're getting something special because uh, we're now no longer doing the podcast on YouTube. So you get to hear this early. People on YouTube, uh, they're going to be a little bit behind the curve. This is the 24th episode, but really this is like fresh. This is episode one. This is new. It's a, it's a new beginning. Uh, but how are you doing this week, Dylan? I am doing good. I finally got to see some movies I've really been anticipating for those people watching, or I guess not watching, but there's a Bardo poster behind me, and so I finally got to see Bardo after talking it up this whole time we've been doing the podcast. I also got to see Bones and All, which is really fun, um, which, um, yeah. I don't know if I'd describe Bones and All as fun, but... (laughs) We'll get into that a little bit later, but how have you been this week? Dude, I've I've been I've been great. Um, actually, so next week I'm I'm headed off to Disney World, which I could not be more excited for. And uh, last night I I received an award, which was crazy. Uh, so yeah, no, like seven years ago I applied for film school and I got rejected. I only applied to one school because it was uh, the best one in Canada, and I was like, okay, if I'm not going there, I'll wait. I'll just keep trying until I get in. So I got rejected the first year, and then I uh, I got accepted the following year, and now I just graduated with uh, an award distinguishing me as one of the top filmmakers in the class, which is like, you know, it it feels, uh, it feels nice to think back seven years and be like, you know, I felt pretty broken when I got that rejection letter the first time, um, but yeah, no, so my week's been fantastic. And uh, I'm feeling pretty positive, feeling pretty magical with that Disney trip coming up. Uh, But as always, we start off with a question. And because we're talking about a couple Netflix movies this week, you might have gotten from the title here that we're going to be talking about Pinocchio. We're going to be talking about Bardo. Uh, So it's a very Netflix-filled week. And Dylan, what's your favorite Netflix movie of all time? See, even though I picked this question, I don't really have a real answer to this question because I think Netflix hasn't made a perfect movie per se but they've made a lot of good movies a lot of great movies they've never made my number one or my number two of a year but they've made a lot of my top fives a lot of my top tens so there's some obvious answers here but i want to go a little bit unconventional and i'm going to go with beast of no nation with idris elba one of their first netflix originals from 2015 that's one of the first movies that i watched when i was getting into film um i remember watching this in a movie theater too which was like unheard of at the time for netflix movies and um it was 
really good. Have I watched it in a few years? No, but I remember really loving it in 2015. I think I rewatched it during the pandemic and it still held up. And uh, there's a lot more popular choices I could go with, but I want to give a shout out to this one because I think it's very well directed. It's very well shot and it delivers what I think is Idris Elba's best performance. You said it was one of the first. It actually was the first Netflix movie. They'd made TV shows before, but they'd never made an original movie, and Beasts of No Nation was their first one. Um, they might have put out some documentaries before, but this was their first narrative movie that they put out, that they produced, that they funded. Um, and yeah, man, it was that was such a weird thing at awards season when Idris Elba was like winning everywhere, and the Oscars just went, nope, fuck you, Netflix, and turned them down um yeah that that's a really that's a, a great choice i also always get this title mixed up with beast of the southern wild mm-hmm. could not be more different um but yeah for for my answer um i would disagree with you that netflix has never made a masterpiece because i think that roma by alfonso Cuaron um is one of the greatest films ever made uh that film is just about as close to perfect as you could get. Um, I don't believe that any movie can be perfect. I think that there's always things you can nitpick. Even with my very favorite movies, I have things that I can point out as flaws. And the thing about Roma is that it's so precise. It's so deliberate that everything about it feels so purposeful. Uh, and, And honestly, while there might be some things that you feel it could have done better it feels like the movie is perfect for what it's trying to do. Roma is a film that I adore with my entire heart. I would say you can have a different favorite one, but I think Roma is just like, O-word objectively the best one. Interesting, interesting. Well, like I mentioned, I rewatched Beast of... I almost got it wrong too. <laughs> um, Beast of No Nation. Um, I rewatched that, so I think Roma's due for a rewatch for me because I remember being uh, I liked it, but I didn't love it the first time. But also, I watched that like on like a small TV screen, not a huge screen, or not a TV or not a big TV screen. So it's one that's definitely due for a rewatch. But Netflix, they like to get their movies a lot of money for their budget. So this next subject we're talking about Netflix, they're not going to show up here at all. But we're going to dive into some nominations here today with the Independent Spirit Awards. So we're going to get right into the Independent Spirit Awards with the Best Feature lineup, starting from the biggest award and going down. Uh, But before that, Indie Spirits, do they matter? Dylan, do the Indie Spirits matter? Do you think they matter? See, I used to think no. But the last few years, they've been showing more and more that they do matter. Because last year, if I remember correctly, this was the start of the Troy Kotzer sweep, where he started to rise up and started to get actual awards. Because he was nominated at some places, but he hadn't really won anything. And once he won this, people were like, oh, we can actually get him the award. We don't have to give it to Cody everywhere. And Troy kept rising and rising until winning the Oscar. So I think the independent spirits are really showing that, hey, people look at us, they take what we do, and they... Like, interpret, because, like, last year there was a lot of interesting nominations. Like, The Lost Daughter, like, swept, and it didn't actually go on to do anything to completely counteract my point. But stuff like Troy happened, and that's at least something to look at. So maybe overall this doesn't really matter, but for some specific categories, I think it really does. It shows that it's okay to vote for some people that may be against the grain. But just look at the nominees here. We have some really good ones. Does anything really stick out to you in Best Feature? Well, with Best Feature, it's actually really cool, because last year there were no films that were 
you know, contending for Best Picture in there. This year we've got three of them. And I think I mentioned this a few weeks ago, but there was a span of years between 2011 till, I think, 2017, where every single year it was like a Best Picture showdown um, at the Indie Spirit Awards. And usually the one that was closer to winning Best Picture would win here. Like, we had The Artist win, we had Silver Linings Playbook, 12 Years a Slave, uh, Birdman won Over Boyhood, which those were the two frontrunners for the Oscar. So really here, we might have a bit of a best picture preview. So this year in the best feature category, we've got Bones and All, um, which I'm sure you're incredibly happy about there. Whoop. We got Everything Everywhere All at Once which is a fantastic nomination right here. Then a really interesting one. I have never heard of this film before. This is its only nomination, Our Father the Devil. Um, I love when these types of awards kind of introduce new things to me, but um, it's this one has caused some crazy snubs. There are some other films that are not here that it's kind of wild that this film's in instead of them. Then we got Tar, and finally, Women Talking. So of these five, we've got three probable Best Picture nominees right here. Everything Everywhere, Tar, Women Talking. Um, but what got left out here? Because we're missing After Sun, we're missing The Whale, we're missing Till. I don't know what else was eligible for the Indie Spirits. Actually, let me, let me check my list of like Best Picture and see what missed here that like should have been here. At least looking at some other nominees, some ones that really stick out are The Inspection, because I got nominated at some other places across the board, Causeway. Are these ones that are really competing for Best Picture at the Oscars? Not so much, but for some of these little indie awards, yeah, those are ones you would think would pop up in Best Feature over, like you mentioned, Our Father the Devil, that only got one nominee. Uh, right. for best feature but like you said we got three best picture contenders one best picture hopeful and bones and all do i think that's getting in not really but it's it's i think solidly in that like 20 to 25 range where it's down there is it actually in there no but it's it's around but i think what's really interesting here is there's three very distinctive routes they can go that like we just mentioned with troy Kotzer, could be like the start of something but also could be a complete like off like last year was with the lost daughter where they pick something that doesn't really equate to anything because like yes they could go with everything everywhere and that could be like okay this is cool to vote for we should start voting for this but it also could be like oh we've done that uh this movie's still a little bit too weird kind of like the lost daughter was for some people last year and it doesn't end up going all the way do i think that will happen probably not but i think everything everywhere is safe for a best picture nomination just that win is what so many people are like is it there is it not can this can this connect with people of all demographics and right now it looks like it's really hitting the younger demographic the older demographics not quite there yet which they are hitting with with women talking interesting but okay here's the thing about the voting demographic of the independent spirit awards so the independent spirit awards i don't know who chooses the nominations i have no clue who does because i know it's not film independent at large but film independent is an organization where essentially anyone can sign up pay a membership fee and vote on these like we have people in our discord server who actively vote on the independent spirit awards these are largely stan awards and the film that is the most stand is the film that is going to go the furthest here so when we look at this best feature category i think really this comes down to two it's going to be everything everywhere versus tar but I think that the rabidness of the fans of everything ever all at once 
is going to make it win. It would be my choice for this category, and uh, I think that it's going to win. I think it's going to absolutely bulldozer these awards. It's going to win almost every category that it's nominated in, personally. But what do you think's winning here? See, if it's a Stan Award for me, it's Bones and All. Um, I also agree that it's probably everything everywhere, but I could see an off chance that Tar does surprise because Tar did show up pretty much across the board of everything it could have got. And both those movies, in fact, did get Best Director nominations. So Todd Field and Tar, The Daniels for Everything Everywhere All at Once, you got Koganagua for After Yang, Sarah Polly for Women Talking, and then Halania Rajan for Bodies, 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 which to me is a very inspired and just great pick here. If you're talking about stands, I didn't know stands existed for this movie, but if there was a stand, it would be me. That's such an interesting nomination. I would have never thought to nominate her for this film here. But when I think about it, I'm like, she did a lot of interesting things, especially just in the blocking of that film, the lighting of that film, with 90% of it being in darkness. Um, and that's so, like, she did some really cool stuff there. Uh, and while I might not love the film personally, I have no problem with her being here, even over some of the other people that maybe um, were more expected to show up here. But overall, I mean, I maintain the same thing. I think Daniels are winning this. Honestly, what I'm going to say right now is if Everything Everywhere doesn't basically sweep <laughs> the Indie Spirit Awards, it's not winning the Oscar. Because if it can't, get enough fans and enough stands to like sit behind it and go i'm put picking this for everything then i think it's it it won't have that support uh with the academy uh if it can't get it here it's not getting it anywhere else so i think this is really going to be a show but again i really think daniels takes the directing award here as well um todd field has a small chance for it but i think it's daniels or uh, or nothing what do you think about the directing category? I think this one, even more so than Picture, is pretty much locked up for every, everything everywhere. Like I said, in Picture, I could see Tar winning. Director, no. Uh, this is so much a director's type movie that if they were going to come out in any sort of form, it's here and they're not going to hold up here. Because like, I could see in Best Lead Performance the stands of this movie not voting for, uh, yo, they could vote for Blanchett or even Mia Goff and Pearl because they're like, oh, these are other really good performances where Yo's great. She's not maybe the best, but like the people who love that movie are going to pick that for director. They're going to pick it for feature. And yeah, that's essentially how I feel. So if you're voting on Gold Derby, use this as one of your plus two points because this is probably the easiest lock in any category. Absolutely. It is such a, such a lock. So for the best lead performance award, um, this is actually very interesting. So the categories are gender neutral. They are uh, best lead, best supporting. And in the best lead performance, we have eight women and femme presenting um, performers. And we have two uh, male performers in this. So we have Kate Blanchett in Tar, Dale Dickey in A Love Song, which I haven't seen, but I love Dale Dickey, so I'm happy that she is here. Mia Goth, Pearl, Regina Hall, Honk for Jesus, Save Your Soul. Paul Mescal, After Sun, Aubrey Plaza, Emily the Criminal, Jeremy Pope, The Inspection, Taylor Russell, Bones and All, Andrea Riseborough, To Leslie, which I've also heard is, is fantastic, and Michelle Yeoh, Everything Everywhere All at Once. So in this category, my personal favorite, and I actually, I want to do a full discussion on this later on, because I've seen a lot of people and a lot of discussion on the internet with people saying that 
a, a win for Kate Blanchett would be merit-based, and a win for Michelle Yeoh would be, you know, uh, narrative-based. But I want to, I, I would love to, at some point, do a talk in defense of Michelle Yeoh actually being the best performance here. Because genuinely, no narrative reasons, nothing. I actually think that Michelle Yeoh delivered the best performance of the year. So personally, she'd be my pick. Um, but yeah, I think with this award, I, it's got to be Kate Blanchett that takes this one. It's got to be. And I mean, I would love to see Michelle Yeoh take it. But I think if Tar wins one award at the Indie Spirits, it's Best Actress. See, I I think, like I mentioned before, I think this is the category where even the people who are so enamored with everything everywhere can be like, okay, we're going to go elsewhere because I feel like everyone, if they vote on ballot, it kind of gets boring if you vote the same movie for everything. I'm not saying that's what every voter does, but like, I don't know. I feel like if you're going to take everything everywhere off of one category, this is the one to do it because it's not going to be supporting. And Kate Blanchett is someone that a lot of people do like, and they're giving maybe their best performance ever. So that's another extra merit to be like, okay, let's give them this award. But if you have to pick a personal favorite, I haven't seen all these movies yet. Like I haven't seen the inspection yet. I haven't seen a love song yet, but, uh, my biasness wants to say Taylor Russell and Bones and all. Uh, Kate Blanchett probably gives like you were saying the like the technical best performance of the bunch, but not to win, but just a shout out because I thought they were really good. Was Regina Hall and Honk for Jesus Save Your Soul? The movie overall doesn't really work for me, but she really grounds it and brings just a lot of uh, relatability and just clarity to the role that really helps elevate the source material. I haven't seen that one. I really want to see that one, uh, especially seeing it show up at the um these indie nominations over and over it's really exciting to see awards like this kind of go out of their way to pick some films that are uh, a little unexpected because they could have so easily done the expected thing here nominated frazier nominated deadweiler they didn't do that and ultimately i think that the category is much more interesting for it so honestly i'm i'm very happy with that that lineup right there but now we've got best supporting and this one equally crazy and i feel a little vindicated because i've been predicting jamie lee curtis everything ever all at once all year long and she's here we've also got brian tyree henry in causeway nina haas oh actually this that's another thing to mention jennifer lawrence didn't make lead mm -hmm. um so anyways nina haas tar brian darcy james the cathedral kei hui kwan Everything Ever All at Once. I wonder who's winning this category. Uh, Travante Rhodes, Bruiser. Theo Rossi, Emily the Criminal. Mark Rylance, Bones and All. Great nomination. Great nomination. Jonathan Tucker, Palm Trees and Power Lines. Another fantastic nomination right here. And Gabrielle Union, The Inspection. What do you think about this category? Uh, I, th uh, I, th I think this is the best category. here. Yeah, I think this is the best category here. Even though I haven't seen Causeway, I love Brian Tyree Henry. All I've heard is raves for him in that performance and that role. Yeah. Um, I like if you're new here to the show, uh, to the podcast, to the YouTube channel, uh, Matt has been saying Jamie Lee Curtis is the push here, just because of the narrative that she has and how people want to see her on the stage. Kind of like how it was with yeah. Coda last year, and like he mentioned right here, showing up. Curtis is here. Sue's not. They both could have been here. They could have had three supporting performances from this movie, but yeah. they didn't. And, um, yeah, like you mentioned, uh, Mark Rylance, Bones and all. Um, you know, life is never dully with Sully. And in a perfect world, <laughs> Mark Rylance 
this could be a hot take for some people, but in a perfect world, Mark Rylance sweeps the season. But that's not going to happen. What? Um, <laughs> hey, I love when Mark Rylance does Mark Rylance things. In my personal predictions for the year, he's my number one supporting. He's my number four and best actor for Phantom of the Open. And last year, he made my five for Don't Look Up. I think he's probably the best part of Don't Look Up. But that's a discussion for another day. This lineup, I think, is really good top to bottom. There's a few movies yeah. in there I haven't seen, but... Even the ones I haven't seen, all I've heard is praises, whether it's for Darcy James in The Cathedral or, like I mentioned before, Tyree Henry in Causeway. Uh, really good category, but pretty easy win here for Kihu Kwan and everything ever all at once. The thing to mention as well about Stephanie Sue not being here is that uh, a lot of people have said because she's in Breakthrough, she's not eligible here. But it actually doesn't go that way. The way that it works, uh, from my understanding, is that if you don't make the cutoff for the top 10 in each performance category then you're eligible for the breakthrough category so stephanie sue just didn't make it mm-hmm. and in terms of jamie lee curtis i've been arguing about this all year long with people saying stephanie sue yes stephanie sue is the better performance in everything ever all at once however stephanie sue is young um stephanie sue is playing a college-age student um a daughter you know she's she's playing someone who we, our demographic, we can relate to. We get a lot out of. And a lot of these predictors that we're, we're seeing uh, from like the Oscar expert to Film Drunk and everywhere on- online, our whole sphere that we're looking at really resonates with Stephanie Sue. When we actually get into the awards, the voters are going to resonate more with Jamie Lee Curtis. Uh, it's just she's doing a transformative performance uh, she's playing a character that has some emotional moments um, and she's someone that a lot of older uh, people haven't had a chance to vote for before so is she gonna win no but i think she's top five and that's why because she is going that's a, a performance and a character that resonates with the actual demographic of the, of the academy more than it resonates with us so, yeah, overall, I think this is a very solid lineup, and, um, yeah, I'm very happy with... I want to give a shout-out to Jonathan Tucker, Palm Trees and Power Lines. It is a film that's not released yet. It played at Sundance, and, God, what a fucking great performance from him right there. Um, I'm actually... I'm sad in the next category we have the lead actress in Palm Trees and Power Lines, and she should have been in, in lead. Uh, so for Breakthrough Performance, we've got Frankie Corio, After Sun, uh, Garcia Filipovic, I cannot pronounce that, from Marina, which is a pretty solid film. Stephanie Sue, Everything Everywhere All at Once. Uh, Lily McInerney for Palm Trees and Power Lines. And Daniel Zolgardi for Funny Pages. Um, I mean, personally, I think this is like another open and shut category, just like the last one was for Quan. This is for Sue. Uh, Stephanie Sue is going to just walk away with this uh this win right here i think a hundred percent i'll fight back a little bit i think the fact that she did miss supporting leaves it a little bit open and the people who love after sun love after sun a lot and after as we did see after sun did underperform across the board but people could see that and be like oh after sun got underperformed we should still give after sun award sort of thing i know it has another chance later for breakthrough is is it this is their breakthrough their first feature yeah it first has a chance feature. for first feature but i still think 
yes, Sue's probably in the lead, but I don't think it's open and shut. I think this is one of the more competitive categories where if you want to take a risk on Gold Derby, you could take Coro, have a little bit extra odds. Is it the smartest thing to do? Probably not, but I don't think it's 100% to zero. I think it's more likely for uh, everything everywhere and like feature or supporting or director than it is here. I think this is its weakest category outside of uh, lead performer. I don't know. I, I'm going to push back on your pushback because, as I mentioned before, the nominating committee is not the same committee that votes. Uh, so them not putting Sue in supporting is is not going to have any bearing on the people that vote. Because, like, again, we have people in our server who didn't vote on the nominations, but they're going to be voting on the wins. And those people are going to gravitate towards Sue. Especially if you look at Frankie Corio's performance. She's a cute kid. Like, she's doing a child performance. It's very subtle. There's not a whole lot going on with that character other than, you know, she, I, the whole point of, of her character in After Sun is that she's blissfully unaware of the shit that's going on below the surface in this film. Um, so there, it's not much of a performance, whereas Stephanie Sue is one of those performances that has that buzz. And personally, I think it's pretty undeniable that I, I actually would say 99% Stephanie Sue wins this award. Maybe one percent for Frankie Corio, but otherwise, I think it's it's open and shut for me. That's what I'd say. Whereas in some other categories, I'd say like everything ever all at once has like yeah, there's like a twenty percent chance it loses. With here, I think this is just absolutely closed deal. Um, and I would say she deserves Stephanie Sue deserves the win here too. It's not just I agree. because yeah. So best screenplay after Yang. Catherine called Birdie. <laughs> Lena Dunham's unstoppable. Everything, everywhere, all at once. Tar, women talking. Okay, I, I want to hear what you think about this, but I'm just going to say I don't think that this is a guarantee for everything, ever all at once. I would really, really, really like to see women talking win this. Yeah. Um, I think there's a chance just because, as I've mentioned before, I think voter fatigue can be a thing. Um, mm -hmm. obviously it wasn't last year because Lost Art did sweep everywhere it could have swept, but I don't know. I feel like here is a chance to divert from the everything everywhere sweep. Cause like we mentioned before, Tar could win lead performer, everything everywhere could win picture and director and supporting and breakthrough. Why not give women talking award? Clearly you liked it. You nominated the whole ensemble. That's why they didn't show up before and, uh, lead or supporting. Yes. I think it would have been really interesting if they gave the, ensemble awards to everything everywhere which women talking performers would have shown up because i think there's a good chance that the oscar favorites for the the two supporting of buckley and foy and uh which all would have shown up and and the supporting category but it would have been really interesting if uh, not foy but um of mara could have shown up in lead performance um because mm. it's a performance that probably won't get nominated across the season just because of how stacked that lead actress category is but award shows like the this could award that but obviously it won the ensemble award so it didn't show up in any of those categories this is the one category i do think it has a shot to win though yeah i i agree we're this is one of the only times when we're gonna see everything everywhere go up against women talking in the screenplay category so this is going to be a very interesting showdown and i think it's one of those um i'm i'm also leaning towards women talking in this category but really i think it could go either way um and if everything ever all, all at once wins here that just shows just how much people love this movie at the indie spirit awards i think one of the really interesting categories here is for cinematography because uh 
we have some nominees here. We have After Sun, Marina, Neptune's Frost, mm-hmm. Pearl, and Tar. But th- there's two missing that I think are really interesting because there's been a lot of people saying, oh, these are Oscar contenders. These could get into the yeah. Oscar five. And that's Everything Everywhere, which you can take your case to why it's not here. But really? the one I think is more I, I interesting. Wouldn't, hmm. I wouldn't say Everything Everywhere is an Oscar contender in cinematography. I, I, I wouldn't either. It's exceptional. I wouldn't either, but I've seen a lot of pundits have it in their like top seven, top eight sort of thing. That's where I don't wild. think it's in the top ten at all. <laughs> but the one I think is most interesting that's not here, not because I have it in my five for the Oscar, but it's because of how many people are saying this is still getting a nomination, and that's women talking. You can say anything you want about mm-hmm. this movie. People are still going to be like, the color grade looks weird. I love the color grade. We've talked about this on the show in prior episodes that you can go back and watch about why the color grade's there and what its use is. But as we see here, even with a smaller voting body for like uh, for indie films, it still doesn't crack the five. And here they have six nominees. It still doesn't get in. And I think that just speaks uh, louder to why Women Talking is not a screenplay, or not a screenplay, a cinematography contender this year. Uh, yeah. Love it or hate it. It's just way too divisive. While here, I think it's pretty obvious what the winner is, but maybe I'm just blinded because I've by the Tar love I've seen across the board from people online. But a lot of people who love Tar love the cinematography. Pearl cinematography, I think, is the I will get all the hate for this, the highlight of the movie. Um, and then I haven't seen Marina or Neptune's Frost, and after it's on cinematography, it's, it's fine to me. So maybe I'm biased due to my lack of love for some of the other movies here. But Tar seems like the, like, we can't give it some more above the award, above the line award, so let's give it this one. This is actually one of the few categories here that I've seen every film from. Um, and my, I agree with you. I think Tar's going to win, but I don't think it's open and shut. I think something else could sneak in here. Because I'm going to be honest, I think that the cinematography is one of the weakest parts of Tar. Uh, it looks very plain to me, but obviously that's not the case for everyone. A lot of people really love the look of this film, um, but I don't think it's it's a guarantee to win here, especially up against After Sun or Pearl, because Pearl looks spectacular. After Sun, I don't think looks absolutely incredible, but it has some very striking visuals in it. Marina and Neptune Frost are really inspired nominations here. Um, but neither of them has a chance at winning just because of visibility. They're both very small films. They're a little bit hard to get through. Um, they're not the most exciting movies out there is what I'd say. Um, but yeah, I, I think that this is a really inspired lineup. Even if I don't fully agree with all of the choices, I think it's really cool choices. Then we got Best Documentary. And I'm really happy to see some of these films show up because... Uh, this is a good predictive category for the Oscars. So we have A House Made of Splinters, which is a pretty solid documentary about um, refugees in Ukraine, um, and specifically orphans uh, in uh, Ukraine right on the border. All That Breathes, which I'm so happy to see here, because that so matters to getting a documentary nomination at the Oscars. All the Beauty and the Bloodshed, Midwives, which is, uh, it played at Sundance, haven't heard much about it since then. I think that's the one film here that you can kind of discount as like, that's not really going anywhere. But then we got Riotsville, USA, which has great reactions. I can tell you firsthand that people working in the documentary field, people who are Oscar voters in documentary have been talking about this film. Um, like I, I have that firsthand uh the first time i heard about this movie was from an academy documentary voter so riotsville usa this is one of the first times it's shown up 
in any of these awards nominations. But I think that this has a chance of making it into the five, just like how a few years ago Hale County this morning, this evening did. So do not discount Riotsville, USA for a nomination. It could totally goddamn happen. Um, but I think the winner here is going to be... It's a toss-up between All That Breathes and All the Beauty and the Bloodshed. What do you think, Dylan? See, I think All That Breathes is like the film that shows up at every nomination but never wins. I, it just screams that type of documentary to me where it's going to be very consistent throughout the season, but it's never going to reach like a good night Oppie and win or in All the Beauty and the Bloodshed and win an award. However, I think Riceville USA could upset here and take the win just because like what you're saying, it's people are so passionate about it. There are people who are so passionate about All the Beauty and the Bloodshed. There's also a lot of people who are on the other side who really just aren't connecting, aren't vibing with that movie, as we've seen it miss some of the nominations it sort of easily got in the season so far. While Riotsville, with it popping up here, clearly shows that at least some portion of this body loves it. Obviously, the voting body is a little bit different, but that voting body could really love it too. And that one could easily be the one like, okay, I see this list. That's when I love the most. Where if you see all the beauty, like that's really technically well-made, but I don't know if I really love it. And all that breeze is like, okay, this is good, but it's not my number one, where I think Riotsville is going to be the most common, like number one answer out of these. I, yeah, I think that's a, that's a good point that you've made there. Um, yeah, I don't know. All that breathes, I, I would say don't completely count that one out because it is so beautifully made it's so beautifully crafted um and it really is eye-popping and i think that it could win here maybe not anywhere else but it could win here in particular and then let's move on to the best editing category we've got after sun which is a great nominee if there's one category that after sun should be nominated in it's this one we've also got the cathedral everything ever all at once marcel the shell with shoes on such a weird nomination for that film but I'm glad it showed up somewhere. And then uh, we got Tar to wrap up that five. And I think that this one's pretty obvious. It's everything ever all at once right here. Feels pretty open and shut. But again, I think After Sun could upset. I think Tar could upset. Um, I mean, Marcel the Shell, weird nomination. Glad it's here. Glad it showed up somewhere. But um, yeah, it's not winning this. I think it's very interesting how three of these nominees are a 24 um out of the five and easily you probably could make a case for a fourth for a movie that got got zero nominations across the board but yeah everything everywhere gonna win this um now let's dive into the final nominations for the indie spirits before we wrap up this part and we have corsage we have joyland we have lenore will never die return to soul and saint omer which i think is a very interesting lineup because all these movies have gotten various reactions from positive to very 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 negative but none of these movies have gotten raves as in like these this is my favorite of the year sort of thing so i think this is a very interesting lineup where honestly i could see any of these winning i don't think there's a clear number one and i don't think there's a clear number five at the moment well i mean you said that there were no raves but i would actually disagree and i'd say that people have been raving about saint omer it has like a 95 on metacritic but that said i think it's a critics film and nothing more i do not think that it can get the votes here um because it is such a cold film it's such a I'm going to say it's a dull film. I found it really not engaging one bit. And to the film independent body, which is 
not the most sophisticated. I mean, they're not not sophisticated, but like they're going to vote everything ever all at once. They typically vote things that are like they 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 don't always go for like the artsiest fartsiest movie of the bunch is what I mean. Um and that's why I think Joyland wins here. Joyland is in many ways kind of feels as though it could have been made by American independence. It's a very low-key, very sweet romance. Um, and it also is embroiled in some controversy because the film was banned in Pakistan. So if that's the case, I mean, it's got controversy, it's got narrative, and it's the film that appeals to the voting body here the most. I think Joyland is winning this. Um, and I also think it could get into the Oscars just based on this narrative as well. Um, overall, though, interesting that Close is missing here and Decision to Leave is missing here, both of which like probably should have shown up in this lineup for international film. I don't think Decision to Leave would have been too expensive. Close definitely isn't too expensive. So weird, weird omissions for those two films. And I can say with certainty that whatever wins here is not winning the Oscar. We are reviewing Bones and All, Luca Guadagnino's brand new film starring Taylor Russell, Timothy Chalamet and Mark Rylance. This is a movie I've been hyping up for so long, so anticipatedly waiting for, and it lived up to expectations for me. But for you, I don't know. How are you going into this movie? Were you expecting big things? Were you like, I don't know about this premise because it is pretty out there because it is. For those who don't really know, we are going to do a full spoiler discussion here. If you have not seen Bones and All yet, Please leave the video. I don't care about watch time. I don't care about views. I want you to see this movie because this movie is either my favorite or my second favorite of the year. And I've seen like 110 movies that have came out this year. So that's a huge recommendation for me. Then come back and listen to both of us talk about it. But yes, Bones and All, great movie. Cannibals, road trips, love, everything. Did you like it? I I did like it. I didn't like it as much as you did, though. Uh, so for, for Bones and All, uh, this is one that... I was anticipating, but I, I'm not going to say I was, like, the most anticipating this one. I am so squeamish with anything with cannibals. Uh, like, the film Raw, I gave a horrible review when I first watched Raw um, because it grossed me out so much that I, I just couldn't deal with it. And then I watched it again later, and I was still grossed out, but I was like, no, this is actually a really good movie. I just hate watching people eat people i think it's so i can't do it i can't do it and so uh, when it came to this movie i wasn't really fiercely anticipating it because i know how much i um uh, am uncomfortable with cannibal movies i'm not a cannibal movie guy you know weird right i don't love Whoa. seeing people eat people what a weird thing um but no, I mean, I I think Luca Guadagnino has had some fantastic films over the past few years, and I'm always interested to see what he does. Uh, and you know, the the entire concept of it being a love story between Taylor Russell, who is one of the best Canadian actors. I need to claim Taylor Russell right now. Canadian actors out there, um, who gave one of my favorite performances of the 2010s. In Waves, which is, again, just an incredible film, and Taylor Russell is so good in it, plus Timothy Chalamet, who is obviously an incredible actor. So those two coming together for Luca Guadagnino doing a horror romance, yeah, very intriguing. Uh, but again, 
I still have reservations with the whole cannibal thing. I, I, I'm gonna be honest, I am biased against cannibals. Um, and part of that, you know, I, I was really squeamish during a lot of this movie. So, I, I know you gave this a, a strong 10 out of 10, uh, but for me, I would actually say, personally, I, I gave this film a light 7 out of 10. Um, there was a lot that I really liked about it. But personally, I would say that this is, if I were to rank Luca Guadagnino's films, I'd go Call Me By Your Name, Suspiria, I Am Love, Bones and All, and then A Bigger Splash at the very bottom. So it's my second from the bottom Luca Guadagnino film. And I'm, I'm so sorry about that because I know you loved this film so much. I did. Bones and All really kind of hit everything I wanted it to be, which is kind of weird because I wasn't really expecting much going into this. Um, but I really, I shouldn't say expecting much. I kind of went in with an like an open mind, not really thinking about anything, uh, just really opening myself up to it because I have not read the book, but I know someone who has. Like I am very much encouraged. I'm like, hey, read this book. So then when we see the movie, you can tell me what was accurate, what wasn't accurate. And I think a lot of the switches they made from the book to film were very much for the positive for the story because I think um, to counteract your point, cause I, but I mean, not even counteract, just to be a little bit different. I know yeah. everyone's interpretations to everything is a little bit different. For me, I've never really been squeamish to blood or to horror or to violence. I often find that my favorite movies and my least favorite movies are in that horror genre because I think horror is either something you can do amazing or you can just really shit the bed and be bottom line and be like awful. But I think Guadagnino and company here really knock out the park. Taylor Russell does a beautiful job portraying Marin and they're in such like a compelling, engaging and emotional, relatable fashion. Like even though obviously not a cannibal, you're not a cannibal, but I can really connect and resonate with her character of isolation and feeling like abandonment, but also finding yourselves in others, but also being a little bit wary and scared of other people even though they are like you but they're not entirely like you and like you said she keeps proving why she's one of today's best working actors uh waves her performance in waves is my favorite supporting performance of the year maybe it was a lead maybe it's supporting it's one of those borderline this one she's clearly a lead i can't wait to see what she does next Chalamet does Chalamet stuff he looks cool he acts cool he does cool stuff but for this movie as much as i love taylor russell praise her there's one person who just absolutely steals this movie every time they pop up they pop up like three times and you can never take your eyes off of them because you know life is never dull it was shelly because mark rylance is the greatest of all time he's becoming one of my favorite actors this is like his third fourth straight performance where he's doing such a weird character so off the walls but it works so well like i don't understand how he yeah. nails like the mannerisms of just like so hunched or so like just off-putting to like your squeamish my squeamish came from like his body not so much of eating or biting it was the whole like his posture and how he just mannered himself and how he was so not i don't want to say relatable but you cared for a character that was so like evil and despicable because he wasn't evil naturally the world kind of made him evil from being isolated no one being around and you feel for him and you feel bad that all this stuff is happening to him but he's still like the antagonist and like the villain of the story but to end my long ramble rant the text in this movie amazing if i could only highlight one it would be the score from reznor and ross uh they always do good work but if i dare to say this is their best work uh did you have a favorite tech and if Ooh. so which one was it Ooh. um i mean that's a that's a really hard question i 
I liked the score. I didn't love the score. And I, I think it is very bold to say that it's Reznor and Ross's best work Boldness when they did Soul, when they did The Social Network, when they did The Girl with the Dragon Tattoo. Um, even like Watchmen, I think, is, is a stronger score. I really liked the guitar piece that played, you know, every time they were in the car. I think that was great. But the more ambient stuff didn't really do it for me here. Uh, actually, I wouldn't even say that this is Reznor and Ross's best score of the year. I prefer Empire of Light's score. Interesting. Uh, I don't even like Empire of Light, but I thought their score there was quite good. Um, but yeah, I mean, I think that the makeup, they did a fantastic job with. Uh, and, and production design. I would want to shout out production design a little bit there. Um, but yeah, I mean, overall, no, none of the text really stood out incredibly strongly for me but if i also had to pick a standout here it's also mark rylance personally uh, i would say i wasn't as hot on taylor russell's performance here as most people were um i've seen a lot of people say that she's one of the best performances of the year i don't necessarily agree i didn't really i i connected with what her character was going through but i didn't find the performance as interesting as i wanted to mark rylance i thought you know he did it really well Albeit, it did feel like he was doing um, a Herbert the Pervert invention, uh, impression from Family Guy, like a lot of the time. But outside of, of the corniness of basically being like, Hassan, do you want some popsicles? Outside of that surface level thing, he did some really interesting stuff with his facial mannerisms that really just showed that... Um, he wasn't making the choices with his mind. He was making them with his whole body. And, like, what I'm talking about is there's this moment in the film. There's this stunning goddamn moment um, where it's a close-up on Mark Rylance's face and a little dribble of spit comes to the front of his mouth and he starts to drool. And you, as an actor, how do you do that? How the hell do you do that as an actor? Like, in one close take, like salivate and slobber um like he he pavloved himself there I, I what the hell that was such a a great moment but yeah i mean overall i i think you you've said to me that um mark rylance is your number one supporting performance of the year personally i wouldn't put him in my top 10 but i think he had some moments that were just like yes this is why mark rylance is one of the best working actors right now Definitely. Um, fully agree with that statement. One of the best working actors. The other tech I really want to give a shout out to in addition to the ones that you mentioned, the editing. I thought there was some very inspired editing choices here. And for a movie where not much happens at various points, the movie never felt like it was a slog or it was a dull. It felt like the story was, at least for me, continuously progressing the whole time at its own pace. Obviously, some moments are a lot more ramped up to 10 and some moments are kind of like a two or three, but they all end up coming together at the end to help press because whether it is the crossfades that perfectly blend themselves into the next shots or just the the moments it cuts on like you mentioned that extreme close-up of rylance um and there's another one with him where he's by uh, the van and maybe the same one you're talking about um where it cuts to him and he just has a moment to give like the facial transformation of how he wants to support Marin. but then when she tells him no you see that complete shift in his whole body from be like okay i'm a little weird but i'm your friend to I hate you, you're awful sort of reaction. His whole body switches in. I don't know. I really love this movie. I understand why some people may be off of this movie, uh, but mm -hmm. that's the beauty of cinema. <laughs> beauty of cinema. Yeah, I, I mean, 
I, I would definitely agree that the film never felt slow or felt like a drag. But part of why I gave this film a, a light 7 out of 10 is because I feel like the story at times feels a little bit aimless. And that kind of comes with the territory of being a road trip movie, of being a movie where the main character doesn't really know where she's going or doesn't know what she wants, and she stumbles upon these things in the way, and people weave in and out of the story. But the thing that I felt about this is that I, I felt that there was at times a bit of a lack of an overarching goal, uh, a bit of a lack of an overarching conflict. Um really that's what it is i didn't feel like the conflict continued through the film in a really satisfying way like you said mark rylance sully is the antagonist of the film but i don't i didn't feel like he was the antagonist he was just a character that showed up a few times and you know was creepy and then would disappear but i think if you have an antagonist you want them to be like a thematic through line to the film and personally i didn't really feel like i got that out of the movie um, but that said, it was never boring. It was always interesting. I really loved the character interactions between Timothy Chalamet and Taylor Russell's characters. Um, but I just, I just wish that there was a little bit more narrative cohesion through the film. Um, and I think that's, that's why I felt a little bit distant from it. Mm -hmm. I would say to maybe help if you ever do decide to rewatch this, uh, to me, the antagonists are themselves because it deals, at least to me, what I got out of it was learning self-love combating with self-hate because there's things that you're mm -hmm. born with that everyone has you're born with whether it's your nose or your eyes or something that you just don't love or you don't like about yourself for these people they're cannibals uh but so it's the extremists so like throughout the movie there's various times where like they had to make decisions where they are not happy with them but it's what they had to do to live and then just mark rylance is just like the at the end the accumulation of what the worst decisions you can make with your life are compared to how they end up deciding to live with essentially playing house in that last act but right similar to you i would say a seven is about equivalent to a b and that's what this movie got from cinema score which i think is a great reaction for this type of movie i saw a lot of people online saying this is a c this is a d type cinema score movies like some horror movies do get um However, with it being, like, it seems like audiences are more receptive to this. I know I've mentioned in the show in the past, I could see an angle for a best adapted screenplay of how weak that category is. Because, I mean, you have women talking at one, she said at two, glass on at three, and you have, like, two open slots. What to do with them? You have a Pinocchio, you have a Maverick, you have a Whale. Uh, now it looks like maybe you have a Bones and all. Do you think this is a sole screenplay nominee, or do you think this is nothing? I, this is nothing. This is absolutely nothing. If, if it gets anything, it would be makeup. Um, but I mean, I just do not see any world. And, and I'm really sorry to rain on your parade here. <laughs> I wouldn't put this in my top 10 for screenplay. I wouldn't put this in my top 15 for screenplay. It is so dark. It is so grotesque. It, like, you know, I think those are the best descriptions for it. And it's so bloody and hard to watch and at times repugnant um, that I, I can't, I can see a lot of Academy voters turning the film off before mm -hmm. getting through it. Um, I think a lot of the people that went to see it on the opening weekend are the people that are down for this type of movie, you know, uh, are people who are up to seeing um, massive amounts of blood and gore. I, I think similar to 
Titan last year, where people thought, oh, could this get a directing nomination? Could this get uh, international feature? The awards voters were not really the ones going to see that film. Um, and it did end up getting a BAFTA nomination, but I don't think it ever would have gotten that if they didn't have a jury deciding. And Bones and All feels very similar to me. I, I don't think that there's a chance in hell that this comes near the Oscars. Um, if anything, you know, this will be one where in 10 years people will look back and say, yeah, we screwed up. This one was better than, than the Oscars treated it. But again, you know, Luca Guadagnino, he made Suspiria a few years ago, and that film didn't scratch the Oscars. Um, I've had this talk many times. Just because you're an Oscar nominee one time doesn't mean you're going to continue to be. And, you know, uh, he had Call Me By Your Name and then Suspiria and then this. And I, I don't think that I don't think that this one's coming near the Oscars. No, I, I definitely agree. Um, I think the only chance would be for Adapted. I don't think Rylance is a player. I don't yeah. think that Makeup is a player just with how tough this year is because you have, like, the normal best picture, like, frontrunner candidates, and then you throw in, like, a Wakanda Forever or a Woman King that can take up some more of those populist or inspired type choices. But, like, my point with cinema scores just showing, like, in the past, horror movies that... Because you mentioned, like, people who go opening night are the people who are down for it. Like, Hereditary got a D+. Plus. Uh, Men from earlier this year got a D+. Plus. And then... If you look back just a little bit, the witch got a C minus and like malignant got a C. So it's not always like that's what I was just saying with horror movies. Usually they don't really do well, even with the crowd that normally goes from that's why I was like, this one seems to be doing a little bit better. So this may be a shot, but still not something I'm willing to put money on. Well, the thing with those movies that you mentioned, Hereditary, Men, The Witch, those are movies like my my partner's uncle is one of the biggest horror fans ever i mentioned hereditary to him and he's like i hate that fucking movie i hate it so much huge horror fan and it's because those films that you mentioned those are all very elevated horror they're movies that they take the horror genre and they don't they don't really go for the horror until the very end it's mm -hmm. just a lot of paranoia whereas bones and all i think delivers on the horror throughout uh, you come in knowing you're seeing a cannibal movie, and it delivered on a cannibal movie. Cinema score, if anything, I think Cinema Score is a, a great way to demonstrate how much a film—not how good a film is, but how much a film delivered on its promise. Because I can see Hereditary getting a D plus. Because if you go into that being like, "This is going to scare the shit out of me," and you don't get that, you're not going to rate, rate it highly. It doesn't mean it's not a good film. It just means the audience didn't get what they wanted out of it. With Bones and All getting a B, people wanted a cannibal film. They got a cannibal film. You know, um, that's that's the way I see Cinema Score. And so overall, I don't think that marks it for Oscars or anything. Um, you know, maybe if it got like an A plus or something, I'd be like, oh wow, this could be a contender. But this type of movie would never get a grade that high because it's it is so. Um, grotesque we've used the word earlier it's it's grotesque it's nasty it's hard to watch it's like it made me squirm in my seat which uh, you know that's that's what you want out of a film like this so this next one that we're talking about it's one of my favorite films of the entire year one of my favorite films possibly of all time it's a movie that i feel like is made specifically for me uh and i saw it a few weeks ago i talked about it a little bit on the show but this is your first time seeing it. So, Dylan, what did you think about this movie? Uh, let's just talk general thoughts. 
how how did you feel about this? I know I was stronger on it than you are. That's not to say I wasn't very receptive. I like this movie a lot. I think it's very beautifully crafted. It has some amazing candid visuals. Uh, a very emotional movie throughout. I was I know I had heard some stuff about being emotional. I was not really prepared for how emotionally powerful some specific sequences in this movie were. And I think it has some great social commentary to weave. Like it weaves in to make it a kind of a fresher take. It's not just the generic. Pinocchio story you know through and through it it adds some new stuff which I think is very much appreciated because this is a story that we hear very often I think in like this is the third or fourth adaptation in the last four years so it's good to present new things to the table but if I had to highlight one thing from this movie outside the obvious of its visuals would be David Bradley's portrayal of Geppetto uh, this may be my favorite voice yeah. acting performance of all time behind Andy Serkis's motion capture for the Planet of the Apes movies uh, he was brilliant um, the facial work they did for the puppet was amazing, and it's one that I think will only get better on rewatches. I, I think you summed it up perfectly that, like, this is a film that it's incredibly emotional and it delves into a different side of the Pinocchio story than what we've seen because we've seen so many goddamn Pinocchio movies over the past few years. Um, I watched the fucking Tom Hanks Disney one. It was awful. It's so bad. It's so it awful. It's like the most soulless. It feels like an algorithm wrote the movie. And it's actually really funny because the entire movie through this fucking Robert Zemeckis Pinocchio, I'm like, okay, this is just like the most soulless garbage. And then the whale comes out and it's like this Lovecraftian creature with tentacles and like multiple mouths. And like, like it looks like, uh, a monster of true horror and this movie i think the the whale did a little bit of that too but um yeah there's really no comparison between this and other movies there was an italian film that got a makeup nomination a few years ago um also pinocchio and that was horrifying in many ways but guillermo del toro i think understands fairy tales better than anyone he's made two of the best modern fairy tales that exist both in, in Pan's Labyrinth and The Shape of Water, which I, I would classify both of those more than fantasy movies as fairy tales. And he understands what it is about these stories that have made them timeless, what it is about these stories that have made them um, last forever and why people still talk about them and why people still come back. And his, the reason why it's Guillermo del Toro's Pinocchio, it's not just to uh, show, you know, this is his one in, in opposition to the other Pinocchio movies that have come out this year. It's really because his unique spin on the story is there. Um, this is a film where Pinocchio gets inducted into a fascist boot camp instead of going to Pleasure Island. It's a film where Pinocchio is literally crudely crafted, like someone just took a slab of, of wood and just, you know, nailed it together. Uh, you know, he's he's not the beautifully painted little wooden boy from Disney. He's, like, a little bit horrifying. He's, he's a bit of a monster. But the thing that makes this film so spectacular is that Del Toro understands that um, any fairy tale needs to have darkness and light coexisting. You know, and, and it's about finding that light inside of the darkness inside of this dark tale and as much as this film is like pretty twisted and pretty dark at times uh and will probably give a lot of kids nightmares i'd say that this is the most wholesome movie since paddington 2 
Interesting. That's that's a very interesting take. I, I didn't really think about that, but after hearing that now, I can definitely see that angle. I don't know if about the most, but I think it is it does have some very wholesome aspects where I think it could relate to a lot of different people from various ages, whatever they are, very young, who may not yeah. get some of more of the adult themes that uh, Del Toro and co-director Mark Gustafson present to the table, but um, there's still stuff for the adults too that they can really resonate with, whether that is some of the stuff with Pinocchio's connection to Geppetto and some of the other father, son, and parent, uh, child uh, relationships that are in the film and yeah. some of the, just, there's a lot going on here, but if I had, to, if you had to point out one thing that was like the highlight of the film to you was it a specific tech or was it like a performance or was it a song because there are songs in this this is a musical <laughs> this is a musical honestly the music was the only thing that i was a little bit underwhelmed with i still really liked the music but it wasn't like spectacular so if i had to point out one thing that uh, really stood out to me it'd be the production design uh if i look at this in comparison to guillermo del toro's other films you see a lot of comparisons between it like this alongside nightmare alley there's a lot of things that look very similar a lot of design things that you can see his mark on this film um there's a lot of things about it that remind me of pan's labyrinth in the design of it uh the design of the creatures can at times remind me of the shape of water like pinocchio himself that little pinocchio doll would look perfect up alongside the the creature from the shape of water and you know so that that production design really is the the star of the show in my mind and the animation is incredible too um but yeah visually this is just such a stunning stunning film and to look at this alongside other stop motion films truly this craft is so underappreciated and i think that del toro did it so incredibly well here with so much respect for the form he's never made a stop motion animated film before but you would never know like this one I would actually say feels like it came from the brain of a stop motion master even more so than Wendell and Wilde did this year which actually came from the mind of a stop motion master uh definitely I still haven't seen Wendell and Wilde yet so I can't do the comparison there but uh this movie was very good at while I didn't love it as much as you did still very solid movie for me I would give it a very yeah. very strong eight it's when I cannot wait to watch again I got the pleasure of seeing it in a theater which I know you did as well I know a lot of people won't be able to see this until it hits Netflix or won't be able to see it until it's like on their TV or their computer I think the theater experience really helped elevate it but I think this is a movie that still will work at home I think there's things mm -hmm. that will still pop out and will still be amazing and breathtaking whether it is visually or conceptually or story-wise from a viewing experience at home however we've both seen this now and this is an Oscars show here that we do. Netflix has a lot on their slate this year. And they everyone's do. been like, what is Netflix doing? I know you and I were early on the train to say this is the number one for animated feature. It wasn't Lightyear. It wasn't anything else. It was this. And that looks pretty true still. However, for picture, we haven't had many animated movies ever get in the best picture. And no animated movies that Three. weren't Disney Pixar. Uh, we've it. had one that wasn't Disney Pixar because Beauty and the Beast was the first one. Um, and that got in largely on the back of the fact that it was the first animated film to use CGI. Um, it was still hand-drawn, but they used some CGI sequences. So it was a technical marvel that got in. And then after that, yes, there's been Up, there's been Toy Story 3. And now, in my opinion, there's Pinocchio. 
I think this is getting into Best Picture. I think that people will take it very seriously because it's Del Toro, because Del Toro's been going around talking about how animation isn't just for kids. Animation is not, you know, the, the thing that you turn on to numb your kid's brain. Animation is film, and this is film. And people will watch the film because they respect Del Toro. And when they see mm-hmm. it, I don't think that there's any way you can see this film and go, oh, that was just kid's shit. You know, that's, I'm not going to pay attention to that. That was just baby, baby movie, movie for babies. So personally, I think that if people see it and take it seriously, this is getting in, in a few places at least. I can see it getting in for Best Picture. Personally, it's in my top ten. I can also see it getting in screenplay, score, song, production design. There was some talk about VFX, but I don't know what the VFX was here. I think people are just saying that because Kubo and the Two Strings got a visual effects nomination. But that film also had like a lot of action sequences, and this one does not. So, mm-hmm. I don't know. What what do you see its chances as for, for Oscars? Because I know I've had it in my 10 for the past few weeks. You haven't had it in your top 10, but do you now? So, when I met you before, it wasn't it was just the Disney or Pixar. So like Beauty and the Beast was a Disney movie and right. up and Toy Story were the Pixar ones. Here, I still think that could be an issue. It's just like, yes, people will care because it's Del Toro. But still, will they be like, an animated movie needs to be here. I think I think this is their push, though. I don't think it's Bardo. I don't think it's White Noise. I don't think it's anything else. I think, it's, I think this is it. Just the issue is, can the Academy at large let it get in and what i think it needs is it needs something to drop whether that is a she said that is an elvis that is a babylon that is a way of water that is a uh, tar or something i don't think tar will drop but just giving examples of movies that could uh one of those would have to drop for this to get in and at the moment it looks like she said could be a little bit because of its shaky box office but we've seen in the past box office doesn't really matter for movies like that elvis has a chance because of how divisive it is but also it has a really good path uh, Way of Water seems pretty undeniable, but obviously there's no locks or anything like that. No one's seen it, but it has the technical prowess to maybe get its way into picture. And then that least Tar, which seems like the critics' favorite of the year. So that seems like a good angle. So I think all those movies are fighting for that spot. I think it's best chances if Babylon comes out, and Babylon is so, so divisive. And so people like, I love the text, but the movie itself is just blah. Like there's not many people giving it 10s, 9s, like there are with Elvis's case, because that's another spectacle type movie where people are really loving it and really digging it. But it also has people who really hate it so i think pinocchio is clearly 10 or 11 just at the end of the day is it 10 or is it 11 honestly this is going to be one that especially with strange world um flopping a little bit not flopping but like not performing as well as people expect this is the undeniable animation winner um and people people are going to see it the question is do they take it seriously and do they remember to vote for it in other categories i think they will but we'll have to see one thing that I will say for certain is this is going to inspire a whole new generation of freaky-ass kids going to Hot Topic for shit. Like, you know how <laughs> Nightmare Before Christmas, like, inspired a whole trend of, like, weird goth kids that, like, idolize Halloween? Pinocchio is going to do that, too. There's going to be a whole new wave of, like, freaky goth kids. Interesting, interesting. <laughs> That's don't my, know if I'm looking my biggest forward to that, but we'll see. We'll, we'll see it come up. <laughs> we'll we'll have to see. Like I can see this really connecting with uh, with the youth, with the youth. Um, 
but one thing even more certain than that this is going to give kids nightmares i don't know we'll have to see because maybe parents will revolt against this movie and be like that could be a narrative killer like oh my god this movie is so inappropriate how dare netflix release it i don't know it's not inappropriate it's very wholesome but it is quite freaky and quite dark so bardo this is a film that we have been anticipating all year long a film that we had uh taken the l on and said yeah this is a lock for best picture this is a lock it's getting in this is one of the ones that's just guaranteed to be a performer uh, it's netflix's number one push this is gonna win the golden lion this is gonna be insane that people are gonna love this it's gonna get a 90 meta score <laughs> no. um yeah it didn't do that um but one thing I will say about, about this film, which is less of a story and more of a state of mind, a film about uh, Alejandro Gonzalez and Yeratu's experiences as a Mexican-American, as an immigrant, as someone who sees himself existing in a liminal space between countries, between identities. Um, it's a film that uh, is very, very odd, and it's a film that is not going to please everyone and when it premiered at venice it got horrible horrible reviews which it's still fighting its way back from uh, because they did release a new cut where they cut 20 minutes and it has gotten better reactions we both saw that new cut and what do you think about the cut because so, uh, personally i liked it so if anyone has to take the big l here for bardo it's me um, we do a fantasy draft of movies that we do for the award season here, and I picked Bardo fourth overall. You may be like, fourth overall? Everyone was expecting this movie to do really well. It's what I passed on is the, uh, the big, like, you're stupid. Take your L. Hold it up. Yeah. Uh, I passed on the Fablements. Um, don't want to talk about it. I passed on the Top Gun Maverick. And uh, I passed on two, like, ones that it seems better than, like, The Sun and Empire of Light on the bright side. Yeah, but yeah. I passed on Fablements, which seems like it's winning Best Director. It's most people's picture prediction for Bardo. And Bardo is a film with many faults. Uh, say what you want about Alejandro Gonzalez and your two movies, but they are all beautifully crafted. Uh, whether it's the sound, the editing, the score, which he did himself in this movie, which I think is really good. The that production was wild. design, yeah. the visual effects, and especially every Alejandro Gonzalez and Yuri 2 movie has breathtaking cinematography, usually the best of the year. Um, all his films are spectacles. And Bardo's no less, honestly. Uh, Daniel Cacho Jimenez stars as uh, essentially AGI and <laughs> has to capture his essence and has to ground, like Matt said, the state of mind because this is a, uh, it's a movie with a story does the story really connect in any way not really that's i think this film's biggest fault is its screenplay it's something that you can't get behind which i think a lot of like the early reactions early people who saw it i haven't seen the extended cut but i think the issue is like people like there's no story here so what what am i supposed to latch on to what am i supposed to connect myself to why should i care about this guy ranting rambling about his life and I think if you can eventually get around to how this movie ends without spoilers and see what everything we just saw was supposed to mean, I think you can come like Matt and I out of this and give it a pretty high rating. Not a great rating, but a pretty high rating. But on the flip side, if you s sit through this whole thing and you're like, why did I just waste two and a half, three hours? You're not going to like uh, this film because it weaves in dialogue throughout to tell you exactly what's going on without you really realizing in the moment. Um, without spoilers, there's times where two characters can discuss like, 
what's the point of a film or what's the point of a life and stuff like that and uh in the moment you may be like that's very on the nose but at the end of the movie you're like oh at least to me i thought those were really good moments that have really elevated this film and its script which yeah. i think is the weakest part of this movie i fully understand why some people despise this movie or hate bardo but i can't wait to watch this again in fact i watched this on thanksgiving so i am thankful for bardo i i think that you touched on some stuff there that is is very true it's one that is so pretentious and up its own ass <laughs> that it's very easy if you're not on its wavelength to just hate the thing outright but undeniably it's a technical marvel um i was thinking the entire way i was like man it's just it's so it seems so easy to make an alejandro gonzalez inerity movie where it's just like have some surrealism um always point your camera directly at light sources like if there's a light source in the scene camera's facing it always always if the sun's in the scene you're facing the sun if there's light bulbs you're facing the light bulbs always Alejandro Gonzalez in Yeratu, special, right there. Um, someone's got to float at some point. If, if there's no floating, you haven't made an Inyaradu movie. Absolutely. Like, that's just hands down. You need someone to float at some point. Uh, and lastly, there's got to be uh, some form of, like, meta-commentary. Uh, and that's the thing that I loved most about this movie, honestly, was how, um, yes, it was extremely pretentious. Yes, it was extremely up its own ass. However, it really felt like Inyaratu knew that because he literally had characters come in to tell the main character of it, which is obviously a stand-in for him, um, to tell the character, hey, the events of the movie so far have been such pretentious bullshit, and, like, this is so... I don't know what the hell you're trying to say here, but, like, you're not fooling anyone, and you're not as smart as you think you are. And... It was so funny to see that throughout the movie um, that he, like, criticizes himself. Now, one thing I'll say about this, which I really liked, is that the whole thing, it felt like less of a story and more like a dream. It felt like it came right from his subconscious where ideas just spewed out of him and he just went, okay, I'm putting it all in the movie. Did all of those ideas connect? Did they all work? Not really, but everything's there you know and i gotta respect something so maximal something so huge um and even if the things don't fully make sense it's not a film that's made to really make sense or made to be dissected it's a film that's made to be felt um you know in tenet they say <laughs> don't try to understand it just feel it feel. and that's how i felt with bardo and you can you can understand all of it thematically i think it's very very easy to understand um especially once i afterwards looked at it, I'm like what the hell does bardo mean um and it's basically it's a state of limbo it's a state between two states so you know um to get into some spoilers here it's like the coma right it's a state in between being living and dead it's how he exists as a, as an immigrant not fully being from america and yet not belonging in Mexico either, just living in that in-between space. Being an artist who thinks that he's, you know, world-class, but also having to appeal to the world. Um, you know, is he a genius or is he an idiot? Is he um, profound or is he void of meaning? 
all of these things Inero 2 is existing directly in the center of. And that's what this film's about. It's it's about existing in the middle of two distinct binaries and not really knowing which one you belong to or if you belong to one of them. Uh, but the way that he approaches that, you know, it's not always meant to make literal sense or even metaphorical sense. It's just a, it's a vibe. It's a vibe. This is a film of vibes uh, and nothing more than vibes. I mean... You hit the nail on the head there. Since we are in spoiler discussion now, as Matt mentioned, um, when you talk about dream sequences, this movie is literally a dream sequence. And I think that's why at the end of the movie, once you realize what you just watched, it all makes sense. Or it all it all comes together a lot better. Because you're watching the moments like, how did we get from train to, to room to uh, studio to this to that? Uh, but once you realize why or how you're in that situation, you're like, okay, then it it works at least for me it really worked there this there is yeah. issues here as we mentioned the movie was originally like 22 minutes longer i still think you could cut about 20 minutes from this movie and not really lose anything and be fine um i rewatched the trailers last night after i watched this movie and um there was stuff in there i was like oh that's not in the movie i really hope that they put up the longer cut will i want to watch the longer cut yeah would everyone know but i would love to see what did get cut and why it was cut because there's like one specific sequence here that does last for about like 15 or 20 minutes where uh the stand-in for inuritu is kind of just walking around a town and some stuff happens but i don't feel like the the uh meta commentary there is really as strong as the rest of the movie it's saying something and something that maybe I personally don't relate to is that maybe why it's not as strong hitting for me, but I felt like that was like the weakest of the commentary throughout the film. However, this state of mind is something that everyone wants to know isn't an Oscar player for anything, because at the beginning of the season, like Matt mentioned, we thought picture, director, screenplay, locks, technicals, locks, probably some wins, and now it's kind of even a struggle if it may get into international feature in some people's eyes. So, Matt, obviously you're not the DeBardo defender here. So you may be able to get the more realistic outlook for this. What are your thoughts about Bardo for nomination morning? Uh, nomination morning, I see two nominations. And um, on Oscar night, I see potentially two wins. Um, I wouldn't predict it for either of those right now, but we'll see. So I'm seeing it getting an international nomination. I do think it's big enough there that it can get the traction. It has the visibility that it needs to get that nomination. And I think that the reviews are positive enough now that it's not going to be outright snubbed. That said, it is a, the type of movie that does get snubbed there. They don't really like weird shit in the international category. Then I'd say this is the thing that I do think it's a lock for cinematography. The cinematography is so undeniably good. It looks so gorgeous that um, I don't see a world where this misses cinematography unless it misses every single precursor, which I think is just wild. Uh, that would be crazy to me if it, it missed all those precursors. I think it would be one of the biggest snubs of the year if this film did not get nominated for cinematography because at this point, I think that it could win cinematography. It's between this and Avatar in my mind. I, I agree with you there with the two nominations. I think there is a chance for a little bit more because if you look in the past, uh, some of those cinematography and international combos do make their way into director. Not always, but you have Papakowski for Cold War. And as uh, Matt mentioned, for this, just a cinematography nomination by itself, that branch is very inspired. They do what they want. They don't really care about other stuff. Like we've seen The Lighthouse in years past get nominated there where it was not a contender yeah. for anything else. 
Never However, Look Away. That was a big one. That was a weird nomination. I still think, and this could be the biasness in me because I did like this movie. I do like Inuritsu. I think there's a world that this could be a, a director uh, a, a director five because of just how much of a director's movie this is. And we've seen the reactions from other directors that really love this movie. You can make the case, yes, Del Toro is his friends, or of course he's going to love the movie. But to my knowledge, there's no relation to Barry Jenkins. To Inuritu, Barry Jenkins has been a supporter from the original cut of this movie. Very vocal, saying this is his favorite movie of the year. He's seen like five times. I don't know how many are the first cut, how many are the second cut. So if those two people are so very adamant, I'm sure there's other people too. And with it being yeah. a surrealist type movie, with it being so weird and out there, this is such a bold vision. And I understand the case you can make, well, they're going to nominate an international director that has a bold vision. You do Oslin for Triangle of Sadness or Park Chan-wook for Decision to Leave. But Inuritu's had proven track record. He's won two in a row. He's not going to win for this, but clearly they love him. And he knows that. He talks about this in the movie even as well. I, I, don't, I wouldn't write him off. Is he my five at the moment? No, but I could see a world where he shows up nowhere in a nomination morning. Boom, Inuritu Bardo is in there for best director. Um, outside of that, I think that's pretty much the thing. You got three and maybe, maybe, maybe a production design nomination. But production design historically, at least recently, has been very best picture heavy. And with this not really seeming yeah. like it's in picture, probably not there. But the production design of this movie is fantastic. And the one other tech I really want to give some love to is the sound work. The sound work here was so immersive, whether it is the opening sequence of the flying, you know, what Inuritu has to do, you have to be surreal, you have to fly. Um, the breathing, or in various long takes, as Inuritu always does, you have the sound design coming from your back left, your back right, forward left, forward right, where like whatever's happening on screen is only from that channel, which I thought worked really well. But yeah, overall, I could see a max of like five nominations, a minimum of two, I think. I don't think it misses international, I don't think it misses cinematography, but there's, there's definitely a chance for it to miss. Um, but yeah, that's Bardo. Obviously, I'm a very strong eight. What were you, Matt? I am. I'm a solid eight. I'd say maybe a low eight. No, you know what? I'm gonna say I'm a solid eight. Um, I liked it much more than I expected to, and I I was pretty happy with the film in the in the end. Um, ultimately, to me, it felt like a mashup of Eight and a Half, The Phantom of Liberty, and The Mirror by Tarkovsky. It was like a weird mashup of those movies. Uh, but like very meta I don't know here's my final take that I'll say about it it felt like a student film with a lot of money <laughs> well here's the thing like baby Mateo I don't want to live in a world that's so cruel that Bardo has to miss Beck's picture we are doing a little bit of draft because that's what we do here on Fantasy Film Ball and we are drafting Netflix's slate of films this year so we have 18 films on the docket for today's draft of Netflix's slate that's on their For You Consideration page. This can range from documentaries, animated features, international features, and just some generic good time type movies because guess what? The Gray Man is on their For You Consideration page. So who knows? Maybe one of us is drafting The Gray Man today. I haven't seen it. I don't know if you've even seen it. So I've seen probably it. It's not. awful. <laughs> so it's probably awful. it's not getting it's... drafted. So essentially, I'm, here's how the draft's going to work yeah. today. Is There's 18 films here. We don't want to bore you with drafting nine apiece. That's way too many. And that doesn't leave any fun for what goes undrafted. So we're just going to get five movies. And we're not really drafting to what is our five favorite. We're drafting what we think is the five best movies here. 
and then after we draft we'll post a link that has our combined teams and if you're watching here on youtube you'll see them pop up as we draft and you'll be able to see all five films competing against each other at the end and we'll have a little poll we'll have one on twitter we'll have one here on youtube as well where you can pick which one which team you think is the more well-crafted and better team because obviously we could draft our favorite movies and i could pick bardo first and pick i don't know blonde in like the third round but obviously those are not very good films per se while there's some maybe better made films here that's what's the fun of this game everyone's interpretation can be different and you could have one person who thinks one team obliterates the other while they could be a little bit more even but since this is a game i present to the table i want to be nice and let matt have the first selection this will oh, be well, a snake you. draft so you get pick one i'll have two and three you're back for four and five but going okay. forward the winner will start getting the first pick in the next draft this is fun i'm really excited to do this because we haven't we haven't done this before up until now the fantasy film ball part of this uh this show has just been that we're playing a separate game but yeah let's get into the draft um okay so for my first pick here i gotta go with my favorite i have to go with the best netflix film of the year guillermo del toro's pinocchio it's my favorite i think it's the best i think it has the most awards potential um and i think it's the one that's going to last the longest if we talk about what film here are people going to be watching for years from now it's it's going to be pinocchio pinocchio is the one that people are always going to come back to that that's a very good pick honestly even though it's not my favorite here it's definitely the best pick on the board because like you mentioned this is one that's going to be long-standing we've even seen with like other pinocchio movies well no one says pinocchio is the best disney anime movie of all time everyone knows pinocchio and this is the best adaptation of pinocchio so obviously you got to go with it. It's also by far the best animated movie on this. So if you want a well-rounded lineup, you got that. I'm going the complete opposite side. You have a going to be a highly seen movie that's going to be remembered for a long time. Give me a very fun movie that everyone is going to want to watch and want to rewatch. And that's Glass Onion, the new Knives Out mystery. Ryan Johnson's back. He's got Daniel Craig back and a whole new ensemble. This is a great time. This is fun. Is it the best movie in the world? No, there's definitely some faults in there. But this is a really fun time, a really great movie, and one I think a lot of people will see, and the one I think a lot of people will enjoy. But to pair that with, I want to pair it with a, uh, a very well-crafted film that um, also has gotten pretty good viewership, and almost everyone who's seen it has really liked it, and that is All Quiet on the Western Front. Is this the most interesting movie per se maybe maybe not but this is such a well-crafted movie the text the cinematography the score the sound this has been called one of the best war adaptations of all time i fully believe that and i want it on my squad so matt we're back to you with your next two picks you bastard i really thought you were gonna go for bardo there i my god okay um all right now i'm i'm a little bit stuck here now because you just picked my next two that i wanted to go with like the next two ones that i'm like yeah these are these are great films and i don't know if anything else left is like a great film um except for one thing there's one film here that i really love but i don't know if it's the wisest choice to pick it at this point um so you know what next i'm gonna go for bardo i'll go for bardo at this point um, I pick. think that this one has a great pedigree. It's a very 
good film. Uh, it's not one that I love wholeheartedly, but it's a film that I think will have an impact and I think is going to be loved in the art world forever. This is going to be, if there's any film here that gets a Criterion release besides Pinocchio, it's Bardo. Bardo's getting that Criterion, that sweet, sweet Criterion Collection disc right there. That cover um, would be a and, beautiful. Oh, it's going to be, it's going to be stunning. Okay, but now, now I think I have to go with something that I haven't seen. Um, if we're just going, we're whittling down the big contenders, the big movies that Netflix spent money on this year. I have to go with White Noise. Uh, I haven't seen this one yet. It has not released yet. And it's one that, um, while I haven't been too hot on it, I think overall this is one that has one of the um, most impressive casts. It costs like $120 million. It's a very audacious idea. It's gotten some good reviews, and Noah Baumbach did it. So you know what? Um, I'm sticking with that choice and saying White Noise is my uh, my next pick. White Noise, I think, is a very interesting pick because I think it's one that will get so many reactions out of people, whether they have seen or they haven't, because it's based on a novel, a very beloved novel that a lot of people, kind of like Dune from last year, say it's unadaptable. And the people who have seen it, there's been people who have raved, said this is my favorite of the year. It has, like you mentioned, such a great cast, such a such a witty script. And then it's been people like, the script just doesn't work for me. While I appreciate Bombac, he's doing a little bit too much. And that's kind of what people say about Bardo as well. So I like how you have that little nice pairing of like, very respected directors doing something a little bit different but still kind of up their alley i so, can already see myself losing this poll <laughs> like as i look at my team i'm like "Ooh, i have bardo and white noise i'm losing <laughs> hey well a lot a lot of people I, I i made this case i've made this case many times before i think bardo has a secret a secret cave of supporters i think there's a very vocal people who hate bardo the people who like Bardo aren't as, aren't as loud. They keep it to themselves. They don't want to be made fun of. And that's kind of the case, I feel, with this next movie I'm taking. Because it came out on Netflix, kind of came and went. But when we get to nomination morning and every nomination for Best Animated Feature, this movie's going to show up, and that's Cartoon Saloon's newest My Father's Dragon. It's one we talked on the show before. We both were like, it's cool. Is it great? No, but it's fun. It's got some amazing animation. And it's got some themes that, kind of like Pinocchio, can hit for older demographics and younger demographics. So I like pairing that with my little lineup here. Because I have Glass Onion, which is a movie for everyone, but maybe more for the adults. All Quiet on the Western Front, a movie solely for the adults. And My Father's Dragon, which parents can get enjoyment out of, but kids should love. Because I saw it in a screen full of kids at the Virginia Film Festival. And every kid there seemed like they were having such a great time with that. However, I'm pairing that with a... Uh, movie that is very much probably going to be what kids would be like, this is boring, I don't care. But I'm going to have a documentary, and this is one I've only heard great things about. I'm leaving a documentary on the board. This is probably a risky pick because there's a few here that are really good. But Senior, I've heard nothing but great things out of. Um, whether it is the Next Best Picture team seen it, was it other people at various film festivals, everyone who comes out of this movie seems to be loving it and seems to be that this is one that they – highly recommend for people who don't even like documentaries because it's just a very interesting story and it has a new perspective plus it has robert downey and robert downey jr so who's not down for that that is not the documentary i expected you to pick i, I know really didn't that's why i that. said it's a risky pick but that I is feel a risky like, pick i feel like i feel like that's a just a movie that a lot of people once they do see it will be like yeah i rock with it okay you know i i see your argument there 
Um, and I'm going to counteract you by going with um, not one of the biggest contenders of the year, but one of my favorite films of the year. So my next pick is going to be Athena, which is one of the most spectacular goddamn films I've ever seen. Uh, this is a film that when I watched it, I my, my jaw was on the floor for most of the movie. Like, is it the most... Uh, interesting story is the plot great are the characters really compelling not always but um if we're looking at just pure filmmaking genius like this film is just composed of long take after long take after long take everything is just like stunning um in the first scene i thought multiple times to myself how the fuck did they do that because in the first scene okay for anyone who hasn't seen the movie uh, i'm not going to spoil anything just, like, watch this film. It will blow your mind. But in the first scene, they go from a police station where they're fighting and, like, firing flares in the hallway. They go from the police station into a car. They drive the car across the city as we see people outside the entire way across the city. This is Paris. I don't know how they shut down Paris to, like, have this van drive through and have action happening the entire way. But at one point in this van trip... Um, someone literally the camera is in the van and then the camera moves out of the van far away we're seeing the van from a distance and then it moves back and goes back into the van how did they do it i don't know how they did it it's insane um so this is a passion pick for me it's one of the best movies of the year and uh while it might not be a contender it's one that i'm so passionate about and would love to put here now okay i'm going to talk through my process on this last one um, because I'm a little bit torn. On one hand, I know that there's a correct choice here. But on the other hand, I feel like there's also an argument for me taking Apollo 10 and a half, which is a great little animated film. There's also an argument for me taking Matilda, which uh, the reason I'm not going to take Matilda, because it is a contender, but it's a film that it would make my team look like shit. <laughs> um, because people aren't excited for that film, no matter how excited I am. The Wonder is also a film that I could really see being, um, you know, a film that looks good on my team. Or something that's not even listed on our group here, another Netflix film, Jonah Hill's documentary, Stuts, is one that I'm a little bit tempted to take because that's a film that looks beautiful uh, and looks like something that's going to impact me pretty deeply. But I think if we're going for this and I'm trying to get people to vote for my team, I have to go with Descendant. I'm picking that's the other a, documentary here. That's what I got to go with. That's a great pick. That's the one I was like, this is probably the smarter documentary pick, but I know I know it's a little bit of a divisive documentary for better or for worse. While senior seems that most people were very positive on it, but I like your team overall. Uh, you got Pinocchio, so you, you fit that animated. You fit the best Netflix movie of the year. And then you got some very art tour type movies. You got Bardo, you got White Noise, you got Athena. And then you have probably the best documentary here of Descendant. However... My big theme with my uh, team was I want to have fun. And we have Glass Onion, a great time. All on the Western Front, the War Buffs, they're down for this. My Father's Dragon, a, a movie you can enjoy with the whole family. And then Senior, a very kind of lighthearted documentary that features some very recognizable faces. And looking at this list of movies, there's, um, there's some movies here. Uh, there's Blonde, that's not a fun time. You got The Good Nurse, which uh, maybe has a fun clip, but is not a fun movie. <laughs> yeah. then you have some movies that who really knows what they are because you have the pale blue eye and the wonder and 
Matilda. Some have been seen, some haven't, but they all don't scream anything. And then you have Wendell and Wild, which is a movie that I want to pick, but I'm not. And I know everyone out there, there's like, pick the gray man, pick the gray man. They know cinema. They know cinema. The Russo brothers are cinema. However, oh this movie, the movie I'm picking is my passion pick of the group because I really like this. It features what I think is Adam Sandler's, one of his best performances in his career. I'm a huge basketball nerd, so a basketball movie featuring actual NBA and international hoopers is right up my alley. So I have to round my team out with Hustle. That's a a good I mean that's a great I was really concerned you were going to take uh, the gray man and when I say concerned I was like okay if you take the gray man I win automatically <laughs> that's that's just it but hustle hustle's a very good film and um yeah uh I can't even remember the the main character's name Wancho her is it Hernan Gomez Hernan Gomez yeah yeah there we go um yeah he's playing for Toronto now so I know this we don't talk about sports here but um that's a big up for the movie in my mind but yeah uh, so we got our teams here my team is pinocchio uh bardo white noise athena and descendant and dill what's your team so i drafted glass onion all quiet on the western front my father's dragon senior and hustle everyone out there cast your vote if you're listening to this on youtube uh we have a poll in our community tab if you're listening to the podcast it's up there on our twitter fantasy film ball and yeah, pick your team because whoever wins this gets our first pick next week, which will be drafting our slates of our favorite Steven Spielberg movies of all time. That's one that you definitely don't want to miss. So <laughs> make sure, you know, I, I you know hit that subscribe button down there, put that bell on. Steven Spielberg, who isn't thankful for him? His new movie, The Fablemans, just came out. Maybe that's gonna be drafted. Tune in to find out. So as always. We do the nominations, our predictions, and this week Matt is up first, and he is talking about best cinematography. Yeah, so let's uh, let's go through cinematography. This is a little bit of a tricky lineup at this point, actually. Um, so I'm going to start from the tippity top and make my way down. At this point, I think best cinematography, it's a race for number one, and it's a toss-up at this point between the winner. There's a lot that can change between now and the very end of the season, but, um, yeah, I'm going to have to say at this point, Avatar The Way of Water is my front runner. Let's go. And after that, I've got Bardo, False Chronicle of a Handful of Truths, following it right behind. Now, I think these two movies are going to be so undeniably visually stunning that uh, you kind of have to put them in this category as nominees. And I think they have a strong case to win. Now, they both have a strong case against the win, too. For Avatar The Way of Water, the case against the win would be that they already gave Avatar a cinematography award in 2009. Are they really going to award it again? Uh, I mean, it of course does have underwater photography this time, and it's uh, it's still going to be a visually stunning film, but are they always going to award the Avatar film? I don't know. And then Bardo, False Chronicle of a Handful of Truths. This film is so visually stunning. If there's one thing everyone is agreeing on when they finish this movie, whether people think it's good, bad, in between, they like the cinematography. It looks gorgeous. But at the same time, this film's very polarizing. And 
I don't know off the top of my head the last time that a very polarizing film like Bardo won an award as big as Best Cinematography. This is one of the awards that it doesn't necessarily mean the most to winning Best Picture, but I would say Best uh, Cinematography and Best Director have a great, very strong correlation between the two of them. And is Bardo well acclaimed enough to have a shot at directing? I would say no, uh, which is why I think it is a little bit shaky here. Then at number three, I've got Top Gun Maverick. That aerial photography is really going to get it into this top five and maybe give it a winning shot because it does a lot of cool stuff up in the air. At number four, I've got The Fablemans. This is one that I've seen a lot of people say that they think it can win. Janusz Kaminski uh, is a legendary cinematographer, but the film, it looks kind of plain, I'm going to be honest. It's not one that I think is, is spectacular looking in any way. And so do I see this winning cinematography? No. But that said, I did just say that there's a pretty strong correlation between at least a director nomination and a cinematography win. And in past years, there has been a correlation between directing wins and cinematography wins. And Spiel Steven Spielberg, he's winning director. Could this tag along? Number five, I've got the Banshees of Inisherin. Now, this is one that I think the cinematography is so strong. The way it uses light is so beautiful. You can see the streams of light coming through the walls of, um, of the houses, through the bricks. And it's, it's just gorgeous to look at throughout the whole film. So, honestly, I think Banshees of Inisherin, while it might not be the strongest contender for a nomination, I think right now it's in my top five. But following that, I've got Babylon. Babylon is a little bit of a tricky one here because this film's got some mediocre reviews. And the fact of the matter is we thought Babylon might be a 12-nomination film. It's not a 12-nomination film. It's still going to get quite a lot of nominations, but it's not going to get everything that's expected. And if we're looking at what's on the chopping block, I think cinematography is on the chopping block. It's not one that I think is... it. I don't think it needs cinematography to get in. Following that, we have Tar at number seven. And Tar has had some strong support from the Indie Spirit Awards in cinematography, some strong support from some early critics groups in cinematography. Really, do I see it making the top five? No, but I'm a bit biased because I think that this film is a little bit bland looking. After that, we have Sir Roger Deakins at number eight for Empire of Light. Not a strong film, but the cinematography will get praise upon release. At number nine, I have Nope which has a great narrative in terms of how they revolutionized tech uh, in how they shot day for night and how they used the color grade and the specific camera technologies to make nighttime look so expansive um, while shooting in day. Um, it has a great argument for it, but that said, is the film going to have the most traction at the Oscars? No. So, you know, is it getting into the Cinematography 5? I would say nope. And finally, at number 10, I've got The Batman. This one, Greg Frazier shot it. Personally, I think that this cinematography in The Batman is actually stronger than his work on Dune, which he won the Oscar for last year. Is everyone going to agree with me on that? No. And really, does he need another nomination this soon after Dune? No. And is The Batman as strong a contender as Dune? Regardless of what has the better cinematography, Dune was a top-tier contender. He did win the Oscar last year. Uh, I have to have him in my top 10, but he is solidly number 10 right now. That's my top 10. And overall, Dylan, what do you think about those rankings right there? 
I mean, we have the same top six, just in a different order. I also, being the Avatar boy here, have Way of Water at number one for cinematography. And the point you make about director and cinematography overlapping, that's why I have James Cameron in my director five. Because if he's winning this, I feel like he has to be in that five. Then I have Maverick at two. I don't think it's winning, but I think it's the safest thing to a nomination for the rest of the category. At three is where I have Bardo. And that's why I keep saying maybe... Uh, he can show up Alejandro Gonzalez Nuritsu in director is he has a correlation here with cinematography. He has the track record of them loving him. He has a case. I don't think he's in the five, but I think he's definitely in like the eight for director where a lot of people would say, no, he's in like 15. He's at like 20. He has no shot. I think he's a lot better shot, especially for people who have him showing up here as a number two or number three compared to, uh, people who have him in like director like at 20 then that's where i think things get interesting i think those top three are pretty safe i think fablements gets in at four just because it's a movie about film and that's going to help but i think it has a chance to be snubbed because if fablements does have a little like dropping point as we see some best picture front runners have this is a category where it could falter what's helping fablements though is the fact that babylon just had that dropping point and that's where i don't know what to do with number five is because babylon makes so much sense for cinematography Everyone who sees this movie says how bombastic it is, how in-your-face it is, how eye-popping it is. But if the movie is not loved, and they're already putting Bardo in here, which is not looking like a picture movie, can they really fit two non-picture movies in cinematography? That's where I have Banshees getting at number five, because like you said, it looks very good. It's very well shot, and Banshees seems like it's going to be a very safe movie. It's a movie they can't nominate in many places, so like they could put it in picture, maybe they could say director, but lead actor, supporting actor times two, supporting actress, screenplay, what else is there? Maybe you could find a cinematography, maybe you could find a score, but nowhere else you can even put in your 10. And then after that, I think there's a bunch of stuff that could pose a threat, but not really. Uh, Batman, nope, they do cool things, but like you mentioned, they have a lot going against them. I don't think Empire Light really has a shot. They've shown that they don't care about Deacons every time. Just when Deacons is in like a notable movie, he usually gets in. This does not seem to be a notable movie. The one movie you don't have on your list I would like to give some sort of love to, just because it's silent scene, is Emancipation. Uh, a lot of people are talking about the cinematography in the trailer. This is one that screams to me that it could be the one that pops up at ASC that doesn't make it in. That it just gets a random nomination here, and everyone's like, oh, last minute, Emancipation, yeah, get cherry. in here. Get in here, let's take out Bardo real quick. Let's take out Babylon. Let's take out uh, Banshees, because these movies are a little divisive or not as big. Let's put Emancipation because they just got this big nomination and then it misses. That's a very good point. And okay, I want to circle back to the director cinematography correlation. Um, so actually between 2012 and 2018, um, every year except for one, the same film won cinematography and director. So in 2012, Life of Pi won both, then Gravity, then Birdman, then The Revenant, then La La Land, then it broke in 2017 because Shape of Water got director and Blade Runner got cinematography. But then 2018, Roma won both. But since then, uh, we have a split between Parasite in 1917, Nomadland, and Mank, which that was a surprise one. Actually, both of those were surprise ones because Sam Mendes was supposed to win director as well as cinematography for, mm -hmm. for 1917. Um, meanwhile, in 2020, Nomadland was predicted for cinematography. Um and then Mank made a surprise appearance there. But last year, uh, we had our first time in years. Our first time since, I don't even know when, actually, um, that the... No, first time since 2010. 
So in 2010, Christopher Nolan's Inception was uh, it won cinematography. It was not nominated for uh, Best Director. And last year we had the same thing happen with Dune, where it won cinematography, but Denis Villeneuve did not make it in. So the correlation is really, really strong between those two. Um, usually for the two wins together, but if not for the two wins together, at least the nomination. Definitely. I mean, last year was the year where trends were meant to be broken. Whether it was in Best Actor with no first-time nominees, Best Director going to a lone winner, or Coda winning without a lot, <laughs> with just three nominations uh, and sw sweeping. So last year was a year for trends to be broken, and I will be really interested to see what happens this year. Do the trends come back, or are we starting a new trend? And one thing that we are starting a new trend with is Best Animated Feature, because Netflix is going to win the award. Guillermo del Toro's Pinocchio. We said this in June that it was winning. And we look so smart now. We were like, no, it's not Turning Red. It's not Lightyear. It's no, it's not Marcel. It is Pinocchio. And now it looks like Pinocchio could even get into picture. That's how strong this movie is. The fun part with this category is when you go below that. Because Pinocchio obviously is one. Turning Red seems like yeah. a very safe number two. And My Father's Dragon, Cartoon Saloon, they don't miss. So you have your top three. Locks. Four is now where the door opens a little bit. We've seen in the past, this branch loves Disney. They love Pixar. If they put out something, usually they get at least one, if not two, sometimes even three in. And this year, their number three movie, Lightyear, is pretty, uh, was pretty dead on arrival. And that leaves Strange World. Strange World just came out in theaters. It got the lowest cinema score in Disney animated history since they've been doing cinema score. And it looks like it's going to be a massive box office failure. But will that matter? Will the Academy care or will they say Disney movie? And I'm sure this will be on Disney Plus before nominations happen. So kind of like Encanto last year where Encanto bombed at the box office. Everyone watched it at home and like this was really good. I don't think the same thing is going to happen with Strange World as in the massiveness of Encanto. But I still think Strange World will be pretty safe here at number four. Unless Universal can get either Bad Guys and Puss in Boots in and Marcel resurges up. I still have a little bit of hesitancy with Marcel the Shell with Shoes one. Even though it is eligible, I do see a world where voters would be like, no, that's just VFX. That's not actual animation or whatever their case is. So I think realistically the number five slot is a Universal DreamWorks movie. Is it Bad Guys? Is it Puss in Boots? Take your pick. And number four right now I have Strange World, but I could see that drop out and Marcel come in of Marcel starts to get a lot of nominations and people don't really seem like they care, but it's not. After that, though, I don't think anything else matters. There's seven movies for five spots. I think that's that's uh, you make some really good points there. Now, what I want to say is that no Disney movie, no, uh, you mentioned the Cinema Score, but I want to stress this: not even Chicken Little got lower than an A minus on the Cinema Score. Um, people don't hate Strange World. It's not one that I think is going to be carried by a lot of positive reactions. And we have seen Disney movies miss. We have. Frozen 2, for example. That was a movie that missed. Um, it was one that seemed too big to fail, and then it missed. Winnie the Pooh missed. Um, besides that, you know, there have been not a lot of movies that have missed from Disney. But Strange World can totally miss, especially when this year has been at least kind of strong for animated films. So personally, I agree with you on the top three. Guillermo del Toro's Pinocchio is winning, followed by Turning Red, My Father's Dragon. But 
personally, I would have Puss in Boots in my top five. Um, I would not have Strange World in anymore uh, at this point. I, I don't think it makes it in. But the real question here is, is the bad guys number five? Or is it Marcel the Shell at number five? And for Marcel the Shell, the only thing holding me back, because this is going to be a critic's darling, people are going to love it, but is this film going to be enough animation for people to vote for it for a nomination? And I guess I, I just don't know the answer there. Um, but, you know, Strange World, it still has a chance. I just would not say it's in the top five anymore. But overall, I mean, I think you're right, and let's let's take our win. Let's take our win. We've been calling Pinocchio all year long. It's happening. It's happening, baby. That's it. Uh, nothing else can win here. I'd say, like, if there's any category that's a lock right now, besides Avatar for VFX, it is Pinocchio, an animated feature. Uncontested at this point. But anyways, we are going to move right on into our picture wrap-up of the week. And not much has changed this week, so I'm going to rush through just a little bit. But again, I will go in-depth in some of my theories, especially on why I still think Everything Everywhere All at Once is winning Best Picture. Um, so I have a theory, which is all about how I don't think that anything from any director who has been nominated in Best Picture before can win again. Um, we've seen it time and time again. The only time since the preferential ballot has started that we've seen... Uh, a second-time nominee win was Birdman. And we haven't seen a second-time winner since uh, 2004, since Million Dollar Baby. So is The Fablemans going to be a top-tier contender? Yes, but it's going to fall off the same way that The Power of the Dog did, the same way that 1917 did, that The Irishman did, that Once Upon a Time in Hollywood did. It's going to fall off in a similar way to Roma. Or, you know, it's going to be one that people think is happening to the very end, and I, I don't think it will happen in the very end. So everything ever all at once, it has passion, it has love, it has fresh voices, which is the thing that I think the Academy wants the most of. They want something new, they want something different, they want something unique, and this ticks those boxes. So that is my argument for why everything ever all at once wins. At number two, The Fablemans. Yes, it is the front runner. But is it going to lose that frontrunner status? I think so. I think it's going to be the number two, uh, not the number two, the number one all the way until Oscar night, until it starts losing stuff, uh, until it loses the, you know, might lose the PGA, loses the SAG, loses uh, screenplay. It's going to keep losing and losing and losing. And, uh, you know, it'll win a lot too, but I don't think it can make it to the very end. Uh, Frontrunner Fatigue, we've already seen it's underperforming at the box office. It's going to be, I think, a pretty enormous flop, um, and that might taint it as well. At number three, Banshees of Inisherin. I think this one has a winning shot too. This is number two in original screenplay, um, and it has a solid case for a Best Actor win, Best Supporting Actor contender, and a Supporting Actress win possibly too. Number four, Women Talking. This one's winning adapted screenplay. If it wins screenplay, it is automatically win potential. Number five, we've got Top Gun Maverick. This is one that I think uh, the buzz for it might die a little bit near the end of the season right there. But um, I don't know. I, I, don't, I don't think that this one is going anywhere as much as the buzz might start to die. But also, I think this one could win the Golden Globe. 
Number six, we have Tar. This one is incredibly strong with Critics Love, incredibly strong with Kate Blanchett. It's going to be one that gets love across the board the entire season long. Following that, Babylon at number seven. This one, I think, is pretty much in no matter what. Um, I don't think it is risking its uh, best picture contender status here. But that said, it's not a very strong contender. It's one that a lot of people really don't like. So, uh, but at this point, it's still in my top 10. Number eight, I've got Avatar, The Way of Water. We're going to be getting reactions from this soon. Not a whole lot of point talking about this when we don't know if the film is good or not. Number nine, we've got She Said. It's dropping a little bit and it has uh, a risk of falling out of the top 10. All because it's getting horrible, horrible, horrible box office results. Number 10, I have Pinocchio. This one, I think, can make it in on Passion. I think it can make it in on Netflix, pushing it so hard. Um, they might be pushing Glass Onion a little bit harder right now, but uh, I think Pinocchio, at the end of the day, is going to be their push. Number 11, I have Elvis. I don't think it's winning actor, which is why I don't have it in my top 10. Um, also, I don't think it's going to do well with critics groups. I don't think it's going to make critics' choice, uh, and that might hurt it a little bit too. Will it make guilds? We'll have to see. That might be the determiner of if it, if it can make it uh, to Best Picture. Then, number 12, got The Whale, uh, which I'm not as high on as most people. I don't really love the film. And uh, Brendan Fraser is really literally the only reason why this is anywhere close to a, uh, a nomination. If Brendan Fraser starts to falter, the film dies. And then finally, at number 13, we have Glass Onion. Um, this one... I think it has some uh, some potential for a nomination. It's going to be very popular. But that said, popularity does not always equal a Best Picture nomination. And that's where I'm going to leave it at for today. Those are the ones that I think are actually in the race at this point. Everything else I think is just, you know, sitting on the side waiting for something miraculous to happen. But these are the ones that I think have that actual potential of making it in on nomination morning. Anything uh, you noticed there that you want to comment on? Yeah, there's two big things. As Matt mentioned, he's had this theory all season long that, like he said, a previous nominee cannot win picture. But you mentioned a really interesting point I would like to bring up. You mentioned women talking can win adapted, and that for makes the contender. And while I don't know if it can go all the way to a win, Sarah Polly's not a previous nominee in Best Picture, and The Father came this close to winning Best Picture that year. And I think women talking could pull that because it could win, it could win adapted, it could easily win score. Then you pair it with a supporting actress win. Supporting actor, if everything ever falters a little bit, and Ben Wishaw gets a lot of passion, because I've seen people really like his performance, maybe he rises. I don't think that personally, but there's a chance for that. That's a pretty good package to contend if everything ever is not the Best Picture winner. And Fablemans does drop, because at the moment, what can Fablemans win outside of picture, director, and maybe lead actress? Uh, not much. It it can't win lead actress. What are you talking? It can. It can only win picture and director. That's the biggest slight against the film. Is it has no win potential outside of picture and director. I think. All. I think if this is winning picture, she kind of has to come with it. I'm not saying it's happening. I'm saying if this film does win picture, there's no way that it can win without her sort of thing. That just shows that they do love yeah. it sort of thing. Uh, but yeah. No, honestly, if it does win picture, I think. If it won picture, Judd Hirsch would have to win supporting actor. Interesting. That's a conversation for next week when we've <laughs> when we've when I've seen the Fablemans to see if I can yeah. agree or whatnot because I've heard he's got one scene. Can you win on a scene? He does. 
That is going to be a great question. But yes, rest of your lineup, pretty much agree. Spots are a little bit different. I right now don't know what to do with that 9, 10, 11 slot because my 9, 10, 11 are also, she said, Pinocchio and Elvis. Just my order. I don't know what to do with them right now because Elvis has such a great case, but also one little thing really switches it from being like number seven to number 11 and that's austin butler if he wins actor or not because yes. i have not been on the brendan fraser train at all this season and with him missing indy spirit as we said does that really matter who knows but that shows sign that people don't really care for the movie and they just care for him and maybe there's a screener issue maybe but they had 10 slots and they have every other a24 movie but that one show up i think that means something at least but yeah other than that pretty much agree and that brings us to the end of this week's episode of Fantasy Film Ball. Uh, let us know if you guys liked the uh, the new format of the show, if you like how we're releasing stuff on Spotify a little bit early and Apple Music and other listening platforms, and then YouTube a little bit later. Uh, we love feedback, so please let us know what you think. And next week, make sure you tune in again. We're going to be uh, looking into Steven Spielberg's The Fablemans, which is what every film lover is thankful for. Uh, and we're also going to be talking a little bit about Strange World and Steven Spielberg's other films as well. But until next week, my name is Matt. My name is Dill, and this is Fantasy Film Ball. Thank you for tuning to this episode of Fantasy Film Ball with Matt and Dill. Keep up to date with us on Twitter at FFilmBall. Subscribe to us on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, or wherever you prefer to listen to podcasts. We even upload a video format of the podcast to YouTube if you want to see our faces. Thank you for listening to this episode of the show and come back next week.